This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space, a live forum for courageous conversations. Tonight is part of our ongoing series on fear and coping with fear, and I'll be talking to Dr. John Zeisel about anticipatory dementia, the fear of getting dementia oneself. Dr. Zeisel is a sociologist by training. He's also a professor of design and has taught design at universities across North America. John Zeisel is the president of the Hearthstone Alzheimer's Care and also the Hearthstone Alzheimer's Foundation. He is the author of a new book, I Am Still Here. Welcome to Safe Space, John. Welcome, Anne. How how nice to talk to you again. I want to start out by asking you, you have this provocative phrase, anticipatory dementia, and I wanted to ask you how you came by that phrase and what you mean by it. Actually, it was a researcher in at Connecticut University, and, and I don't remember exactly her name, she, uh, she did a small study of that years and years ago, and what she meant by it, and I use that term because it's, it really describes what the baby boomer generation is facing now, and, and, and even our even grown children uh, younger than that, which is this fear of this stigmatized illness called Alzheimer's. And what happens is that we lose our glasses or we forget where our keys are, or even in the rush of a, of a day, we forget the name of an actor in a movie, and we start to say, uh-oh, does that mean I'm getting this dreaded disease? I would say this conversation comes up among people in their 40s and 50s almost every day. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. Your term, anticipatory dementia, though, suggests that there's almost a dementia about the fear itself, that there's something about the fear that has lost touch with. It's very confusing in itself. It's not quite in touch with reality. Is that what you mean? Well, the fear of this, of this first of all, we're always afraid of the future. We're afraid of losing our money. We're afraid of losing somebody. And I, I just saw a movie which was called Cook, and it was, about, it was about Robin Hood when he grew up. And there was this man, he said, oh, I'm losing my marbles. I'm losing my marbles. We have all of these phrases that are all about loss. And we're afraid that we're going to, as we get older, we do lose things. We lose friends. We lose our job. We lose lots of things. But we're also afraid of losing our mind because we, losing our marbles, as it was said in this movie, because we believe that how we remember things or the way we think is what's important about being, about our existence. Yes, we define ourselves by it as if it's our identity. That's right. So we think of, of Alzheimer's as a loss of identity, and this is also supported by the press. So whenever you see an article about maybe a new discovery or not a new discovery or something to do with Alzheimer's, you hear terms like the loss of self, the mm-hmm. loss of memory, the loss of reasoning. And first of all, we define ourselves that way. First of all, Alzheimer's doesn't do those things. But th- we can talk about that later. But the fear we have is losing ourselves. That's yeah. the great fear, and, and that's what anticipatory Alzheimer's is about. Oh, my God, I'm not going to be there. Right. And so as your book title suggests, I'm still here, you obviously have a very different view of it. You have a cup-half-full view of Alzheimer's, and I wanted to ask you, how do you, how do you have this sense the person is still there? How do you know it, and um, how does that inform how you think about it? Well, first of all, where did I get it? And, and that's, that, that's from 15 years of working with people who have, are living with Alzheimer's or living with another dementia, but most dementias are Alzheimer's. And 
I only meet people in at Hearthstone or in, 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 in this I'm still here approach when they've already got a dementia, when they're already living with this illness. Mm-hmm. So I'm not a person who compares them to who they were and then say, oh, my God, look what they don't have. All I'm right. faced with people, and I, I'm, I'm looking for them as people. And everybody with this illness, whether it's in the early part of the journey or when, when, when they're just starting to get upset or worried about what might happen, or in the middle part of the journey where they're still functional in many, many ways, but there are certain things their brain makes it difficult for them to do or think certain ways, and even in the last part of life, which is true for whether for Alzheimer's as well as other illnesses, whether it's cancer or whether it's some other debilitating illness, they're still there as well. You can you can see. Anyway, so those are the that's the the, the period. So going back to the beginning, in the beginning of of this this illness, people very much resent being treated as non-people. Yes. And so basically, they're saying, "I'm still here." And I quote somebody in the book, in the book I'm still here, of an early stage, um, really champion of this movement. His name is Richard Taylor. And he basically said in one of his many, many emails that he sends out to his big mailing list, I'm not half here. This is not a, a person half full. He said, I'm here. I was 100% here when I was born. I was 100% here when I was a dreadful teenager. I was 100% here when I was a professor. And now I'm 100% here living with this illness. Mm-hmm. So, so in the beginning, it's, it's a clear statement. In the middle of this illness, when one works with, lives with, takes care of people living with this illness, with Alzheimer's, you, you start to bond because the, the, the love and the caring and the tenderness and the percep- perceptions they have of the world, the things they see are very, very clear. So that's the second type of of message we get to know someone's here. And then in the end of life, the, the purity of the person comes out. Their emotions, their, their responsiveness, their attention. So all throughout this illness, the person is there. And what I sense from, from Richard Taylor is that being treated otherwise is infuriating and objectifying, demeaning. Totally. And that's what we're doing to people living with Alzheimer's, we're, we're, we're doing, not when I say we, who are we? The hospitals, uh, the newspapers, um, the drug companies, the family members who are, are, are brainwashed by these approaches. Everybody treats people with a diagnosis of Alzheimer's uh, as if it's an Alzheimer's sentence, not an Alzheimer's diagnosis. And it raises a really important question, which is if you are going to live for 12 to 15 years with a condition, and you know it's a terminal condition. It's a condition that says eventually you're going to die with because it, 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 it affects your brain or your liver or, or your pancreas or whatever it is. Are you living for those 12 years or are you dying? And we've been treating people with Alzheimer's as if they're dying for 10 to 12 years, and it is infuriating and it is frustrating. And very limiting and probably even self-fulfilling prophecy to some extent. I mean, it, Exactly. It, it leads to depression. It leads to withdrawal. And it leads to agitation and aggression and a lot of those, those things that we associate with the illness because it's what we're doing, not what's happening to them. This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Ann. This is Safe Space. I'm talking to Dr. John Zeisel about uh, a new way of thinking about a living with dementia. One of the things I think that contributes to treating people as if they were dying for 15 years from, from Alzheimer's 
is I think the wish to imagine that the person isn't aware anymore of what's happening to them. I know that, you know, I was often told, well, in the beginning, the person is aware that they have an illness and they're they're actually suffering more, they're very anxious, they're grieving, and that at a certain point they cross this threshold and then they're really no longer aware and isn't it a blessing? You know, that's that's so that's, often that's said. That's the story. Yes. So there's a kind of, this, a, the, the story it has this little bit of bright light in it that says the lack of awareness means everything's okay. Right, as if it spares people suffering. And so I think people get attached to that idea. That's right. And, and because they get attached to it, they, they say, well, they're not aware, therefore I don't have to treat them as a person. And this becomes a vicious cycle in which the person feels less and less empowered, less and less present, and less and less aware of their own behaviors. I mean, they just, the, the anger has come out because they just can't stop themselves. But right. they know it's anger. They know it's frustration. And they know it's disrespect. In a sense, the positive side of the story needs to be turned around and be seen as, a, as, as the reality it is, which is, I find, even more positive. And that is that not only is the person there, but they're gaining in certain abilities that they didn't have before. Okay, so tell me more about that. What do you mean? Those people whose parents have had Alzheimer's that I've talked to will talk about how their parents used to be much more judgmental mm-hmm. and much more critical of them, whether it's a lifestyle or something about them. And they say, you know, as they, they've become more and more uh, further further into this, this state of Alzheimer's, they became nicer to me. They accepted me more. They were more interested in me. They were more empathetic. And this is what happens. People living with this illness become, I don't want to say nicer, because that's not really the issue, but they become more sensitive to the world around them and to expressing their feelings, hmm. which is something many people have been denied their whole lives with their parents, mm-hmm. without dementia, let's say. So you're saying that actually the relationship with one's parent with dementia can really improve and deepen, become more loving. It can deepen, it can be more profound, and it can be more loving. And that's what many, many people find. Yeah. Building on what you said before about aggression and when people are treated with disrespect, that people start to get more and more kind of out of control and aggressive. You mentioned to me once that someone had said to you, um, my parent never went through the aggressive stage. And, yes, you, right. and you said very forcefully, there is no aggressive stage to dementia. This is not a property of the illness itself, but it has to do with how people are treated. And I wondered if you could say more about that. Well, to, to deal a little bit with the neuroscience, one of the things that happens to the brain of somebody with Alzheimer's over time, it's in the frontal lobe, it's called executive function. Their executive function gets damaged. Yes, yeah, so what we think of as our judgment. Well, it's, it's more than judgment. Judgment is one of the pieces up there. But the other piece is, in order to... What does an executive do? An executive organizes things, has lots of different pieces, and puts them in the right order, and, and gets them all focused on something. So organizing disparate little activities is, it becomes more and more difficult for the person. So, for example, driving a car. You've got to find the key. You've got to find the car. You have to find the put, place to put the key in. You've got to turn it on. You've got to remember. I can give you, There's a hundred steps in even starting a car. You can say the same for brushing your teeth. You have to find the bathroom. You have to find the water. You have to find the glass. You have to find the toothbrush. Ten more steps before you even start brushing your teeth, and then you have to get all around. All of these steps are what our executive function organizes. That becomes 
difficult to, to do, and what happens is people get frustrated. And then when they get frustrated, like we, when we get frustrated, whether we act on it or not, we get angry. Mm-hmm. We get angry at ourselves. We get angry at the person who frustrated us. We get angry at the world. Like when you're trying to make a computer do something and you just can't get it to happen. Or yeah. when you can't get the computer to do it, or as I've been dealing with the last three, three days, trying to get my airline points to buy a ticket. Right. And then to try to transfer airline points from one place to the other. I was very angry at the phone, at the airlines. So that's what happens. And with Alzheimer's, anger and aggression are not a symptom. The inability to organize complex situations is the, is, is the, is the illness, is the symptom. So what happens is we put people living with this illness into situations that are complex. And then when they get aggressive, we say, hmm, it's the aggressive stage, but it's not. It's what we've been doing. And I'll give you a couple examples. In a nursing home, in many nursing homes, the meal is handed to the person on a tray. So you've got all your silverware, you've got your, your salad with some saran wrap on it, you've got lots of different things on your tray, and then you've got little packets that have salt and pepper. I can go on. Yes, I can picture it. That's frustrating because all of a sudden I have to figure out what do I do with the piece of paper, what's inside the little bag, it's pepper, by the way, or what do I eat first, or what do I do next? That frustration becomes anger. Mm-hmm. And so I might run my hand across the tray and throw everything on the floor. Or I might just shout. Or I might strike out at somebody who walks by. So the sequence is we give somebody who can't deal with this level of complexity something that is very complex to do in order to live, to feed themselves. And then we blame them when they get aggressive. And that, we have to understand, is over and over. Now, that's an extreme example. That's in a nursing home. But we do it in homes, in, at our homes. I was going to say, it doesn't seem extreme at all. It seems probably happening to thousands of people every day. In our own home, somebody living, somebody is living in, a, in, in an apartment or in a house with somebody who has Alzheimer's. And they're saying to themselves, I would never do that. I understand that my husband or my wife needs things to be simple. But what happens is they do it anyway, because it's very hard to get it right. So, for example, they think it's respectful to let the person use the bathroom by themselves and brush their teeth. But they've just given them a challenge. Mm-hmm. So, so we do this, this unconsciously. So we can't always identify the cause of this aggression. But if, if you're a doctor like you are, or clinically oriented like I am, there's always a why, and it usually goes back to something in the, in, the, in the surroundings or in the context or something we've done. As you said to me before, it's asking someone to do something that their brain isn't equipped to do right now, so you're asking them to try to make something happen that they just can't, and it will engender frustration and ultimately fury. One of the reasons that in the beginning of my book I describe what's going on in the brain is that what's missing from those people who do these things, and they do them unwittingly, is an understanding of the brain. And so I try in a very simple way to say, look, even a family member, a wife of 75 years old who has a husband who's older and and has a dementia or vice versa, even they should understand what's going on in the brain so that they, in a sense, have greater empathy and greater understanding and can change their behaviors. And so if I was at home with my loved one with dementia, what are some of the most important behaviors to be changing, to be thinking about? Well, 
let me jump to to the big idea that's that's again in the book and that's my work is that the right thing to do is to give the person something meaningful the minute that we define that person with alzheimer's or with another dementia as not being there as not being aware we say well it doesn't matter what they do they can watch television they can play bingo you don't need something meaningful so the first answer to reducing what i call the four a's of alzheimer's yes aggression agitation anxiety and apathy apathy being doing nothing is to give people something meaningful in their lives give them something meaningful to do something meaningful to do uh-huh. and i'll give you some examples but the problem the crime that we're committing and this comes from a, a one of the scientists that i work with barry reesberg who defined the stages of alzheimer's many years ago he at one point said we're keeping we're working to get medications that keep people alive longer with this illness but we're not giving them a life worth living and so the first step is to understand that we have to give them a life worth living now what do i mean by that for example looking at pictures of your children and telling stories about them is meaningful or writing letters to our troops overseas is meaningful or creating something that one can give and donate to a, to a tra- charity or a foundation on a holiday at, at holiday seasons this is meaningful things to do in life you know john what it reminds me of there's a a book called man's search for meaning by victor frankl which you may know in which he describes his survival uh, in the uh, in the nazi death camps during world war 2 that's right and his basic point is that the people who survived were the ones who had something of meaning that they could hold to. That and that was the essence of their survival. And the essence of our survival with Alzheimer's is something meaningful. Mm-hmm. So let me, let me get just, there's one other thing you asked me a while ago, what are the things that improve? And one of them is this kindness and lovingness. Yes. The other, and it's, it's, it's a segue from what you talked about, Viktor Frankl, is that one of the things that went on in the concentration camps at that time in Germany was that people continued to make music. And there, there are orchestras. There's now a, a, another book, I don't know his name, but somebody wrote it recently, tracing the musicians and the music that was written in some of these camps. The meaningful thing that people looked for in many ways was art and culture. And with Alzheimer's, it's the same thing, which is as you develop Alzheimer's, in fact, you become more artistic and more perceptive about art because you lose those inhibitions about what you're not supposed to see in the painting or what you're not supposed to understand in the music. And that's the other thing that increases, which is this understanding and relationship to art, artistic experiences, whether they be paintings in museums, whether they be orchestras, concerts um, in, 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 a, in a symphony hall, or whether they be circus arts or you know going to the circus and having acrobatics go on that is very artistic or whether it be poetry clubs so all of these things can give people meaning reduce the symptoms and engage the person and increase their their ability to focus their ability to talk their ability to remember this is wmpg my name is dr ann this is safe space i'm talking to john zeisel about a new view of dementia looking at the person uh, the personhood of that one with dementia and ways to foster it and be connected with this person. So building on what you're saying about art and our connection to music and culture, 
Tell me a little bit. I know you've designed these arts programs and tours through museums in various places around the world that are geared towards people with dementia. And I wanted to know, what is the feature of a tour? If I was going to the Museum of Modern Art as someone with dementia, how would the tour differ? What What is it that you're... Well, that's a, a good question. How would it differ from any tour you'd go yeah, in? Yeah, how do you aim it specifically so that someone with dementia can get the that's most right. out of it? That's a program uh, of our foundation, of the Hearthstone Alzheimer's Foundation, and it's called Artists for Alzheimer's. We're not going to have time to describe the whole program, but there's a website for it, which is www.artistsforalzheimers.org. One word, no parentheses, no apostrophes. Anybody wants to know more about it, but the idea behind it, behind this Artists for Alzheimer's, is to bring artistic experiences to people. And one of the things we did was develop at the Louvre, at, the, at a museum in, in Australia, the National Gallery in Canberra, and at five museums around the Boston area, along with what we developed at, at the Museum of Modern Art in New York, are these tours. Now, what do they consist of? The first thing is you have to determine the pieces of art, whether they be, be, again, be music or be, be visual art or drama, that link in, that connect to what the people with this illness can do and can, can understand. Okay, look, so make that concrete for me. What do you well, mean? Do you know, um, actually you're from Maine, I think. Um, yes. Wyeth was a painter, was a Maine painter. Yes. And Wyeth painted a painting of called Christina's World. Yes. It's one of the most well-known paintings in this country. And there's a, a woman sitting in the field, and up in, on the left-hand side and in the right-hand side, if you sort of follow her body, it points to a, a farmhouse up the up a field. Now, that painting has many of the elements that all art that links in with the minds of people with Alzheimer's has. It's got a story. It's got narrative. She's in the field. She's sitting down. And she wants to get to the house. Why isn't she going? There's something wonderful in the house. That's a story. Mm-hmm. The second is it's got emotions. Yes. It's got loneliness. She's all alone. It's got empathy, which is the, the feeling you have for this person. It's got peace because the field is so peaceful the third is for many people it 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 jogs their memory of their of past experiences we've all been in a field at one point with something in the distance to look for and to get to it also has objects the woman the house the tracks of the car the field so it has all of those are, are elements that we look for and so the tour guide is drawing people's attention to that and talking about them or is first of all the tour guide is going to pieces of art. For example, there's, there's a Peabody Essex Museum, which is pretty close to Maine, and they're one of our partners in the Artists for Alzheimer's Museum program. Mm. And there are, they have one floor that's all marine paintings, paintings about boats and yes. in boats and on boats. So we, we go to those paintings, and the way we find out, by the way, is that we take people there with the illness and we say, tell me about the painting. And, and they tell us which ones are meaningful to them. I so, so they give the tour. <laughs> but that's as it were. And Anne or Dr. Anne, that's not a not a bad suggestion. <laughs> and in fact, I'll pick up on it because one of the things we do at Hearthstone is that we have people with early part of the disease teaching and participating and running programs for people with further on into the illness. How how important so that is. So you must are absolutely it, it's tremendous for people's empowerment and sense of self. Yes. So I think thanks to you sometime in the next couple of months I'll have a, a resident tell the paint do, do the discussion with the painting. 
That That's sounds a good. Great idea. I want to because we're gonna we're so closely out of time, John. I want to um, ask you a couple more questions before we before we're done. One is I want to ask you just again about people's capacity for connection and how that deepens. You told me a wonderful story about a woman who sat with her husband toward the end of his life, and I wondered if you might tell that again about her experience with him. It runs so counter to our expectations. Well, what you're referring to is the fact that as the disease progresses, if the person who loves that person can stay in touch with with that essential self, with the I'm still here part, they gain tremendous gifts. Because as the illness progresses, you become more and more spiritually connected. And the connection becomes a deep emotional, spiritual connection with the essence of that person. And the story I told was of a, a, a woman whose f- husband, Emmanuel, died um, living with, with us in, actually in New York in one of our residences there. About a year later, she was sitting with Carrie Mills, our executive director there at the time, and she said, you know, I lived with Emmanuel for 45 years, and he did wonderful things for his community, and he did wonderful things for friends, and he ran a wonderful business. And she said, you know, those last three months where all I did was come in every day and hold hands with him and connect with him in that silent but profound and physical way, she said, those were the best three months of my relationship. Hmm. And what it means is is that she, now that's, a, that's what Carrie reported to me, I don't know if those are the exact words, but what it means is that she understood that her love for her husband transcended making a living, transcended bringing up the children, transcended the house and the objects and the things. So there's a... a you know, and even the stories, even the shared memories. It really, you're talking about the quality of presence. The quality of presence. I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to write that down, and that's the title for some book somebody should write. <laughs> Maybe we'll write it together. That would be great. John, we're going to have to stop. I wonder if you have any recommendations for people. Obviously, reading your book, I'm Still Here... But any other websites, you mentioned one for the arts, and I wonder if you might just give people a website, people who want to learn more about the perspective that you're offering. Well, there's, there's three. One is I have a blog where I'm asking people for comments and questions, and it's just beginning because the book only came out about two weeks ago, and that's www.imstillhere.org. And the second is our where we have our residences and, and and employ this um, this approach to taking care of people. It's www.thehearth, T-H-E-H-E-A-R-T-H, dot org. And the last one is these art, art programs of our foundation. Um, and I welcome people to come to that and, and actually also to, to volunteer. It's a very big volunteer requirement. It's one hour per year. Okay, and that website address is? www.artistsforalzheimers.org. Dr. John Zeisel, it's been such a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much for your inspiring work with Alzheimer's. Thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it. My thanks to Jen Hodsden for mixing the sound today and Maurice Lennon for the music. My name is Dr. Ann. This is Safe Space. If you'd like to contact me to get more information,